All right. Well, good morning. Good to see you. And I want to welcome everybody at Legacy, but also at our other campuses, too, at Woodbridge and Richardson, Sloan Creek, uh, in Espanol. Bunch of people online right now, too, wherever you are. Really glad that you're with us as we continue this series. And we'll jump into. Uh, but first, I want us to think back, really, as we do jump into this Shadow Side series with our topic today. I want us to jump back to the song uh, that we just heard, If I Had a Million Dollars. That's a song uh, by this Band that you may or may not remember, Bare Naked Ladies, it's called. Um, I actually saw them in concert uh, this summer. I was in Alabama, in my went with my brother, and they opened for Hootie and the Blowfish, if you know who they are. And uh, it was a great concert. Uh, but I was going to put a bunch of stuff on Instagram from the concert, and I thought, you know, maybe not, because if church people saw, okay, what's my pastor doing at this thing called Bare Naked Ladies? I don't know. And and just, it's just a goofy band name. They're kind of a goofy band, and there were no bare naked ladies there. At least I missed them if they were there. Um, but uh, but let's go back to the song. So, you know, the, if I had a million dollars, right, kind of a fun song. And it's a fun thought, right, to think about. Man, what if I had a million dollars? Or kind of like the Austin Powers thing, because that was 30 years ago. Kind of like the Austin Powers, you know, one million dollars. Let's, let's bump it up. Let's upgrade that. Let's, let's ask the question, what if I had a billion dollars? That'd be pretty awesome, right? Like last year, somebody won a lottery winning worth $1.5 billion. So it caused a lot of people to think, wow, if I had a billion dollars, what would I do? And what would you do? And as I thought about that, the first thing I thought of is, you know what? I could have a Chick-fil-A in my house. I could build a Chick-fil-A in my house. I could have all the Chick-fil-A I wanted all the time and a bunch of people in my house saying things like, my pleasure. Because it's not like Christy ever says that at my house. So that'd be kind of fun, right? It'd be kind of nice. And uh, or think about all the good I could do with a billion dollars. Think about all this stuff you could do for a billion dollars if you were rich. Well, that's what we're talking about today. Today, we're talking about not how to get rich, but how to be rich. We're talking about wealth that in the shadow side series, that it's one of those things. that's awesome, right? We'd be like, oh, man, that'd be great. And it is. The Bible presents it as, yeah, that's a blessing unless we mismanage it. Or we don't manage well what wealth does to us. And then it actually becomes a huge detriment in our life. And so today we're talking about that. And I know that as we talk about being rich, you're like, well, you know, I don't know who he's talking about, but good for them, right? Because we don't, you know, if, you, if I said, hey, how many are rich in the room? I doubt many people would raise their hands. But I want you to understand that when the Bible talks about those who are rich, it's actually talking about you. And it's talking about me. And I've got to prove that. So let me prove it. So if you just think about your income, okay, your income, like put it all together, your annual income as a family, let's play that against global numbers. So the average, like the median income in Plano, which is where I'm speaking from right now, is $94,306. Now, if that's your annual household income, that puts you in the top, in terms of the world, in the top 0.09% of the world's wealthy. That puts you in the top one-tenth of one percent. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, if I had $90,000 a year, I'd feel wealthy too. So let me bring it down. This is the median household income in the country, $50,000. That puts you in the top 0.31% of the world's wealthy. Or let's just keep taking it down to $35,000 a year for family income. That still puts you in the 0.81%. What that means is virtually every one of us in this room, whatever room that you're in right now, are in the top 1%. 
of the world's wealthy. You know, you hear about one percenters. You're like, yeah, man, it'd be great to be a one percenter. You are a one percenter. Um, you know, in a world of haves and have nots, we feel like have nots, but we're actually haves. And that's part of the problem. It's like, I, I, I guess we are rich. We just don't feel like it, right? We feel stressed. We feel overwhelmed. We got more debt. We got, you know, money just kind of goes away and all that. And you think, you know, or we feel guilty about, you know, what do we do? And, all that. and we feel a lot of pressure about money, but we, we are rich, but don't feel like it. And why? And I read a book this summer called How to Be Rich. And it was written by a pastor who was looking at these passages in the Bible, uh, talking to those one talking to one percenters, basically talking to the rich. And what he says is that maybe the reason we are rich, but don't feel like it is because we're just not very good at it. Because, you know, a lot of times money just kind of comes and it it just kind of goes, you know, just comes and goes or um, we don't really, uh, you know, we, we there's a lot in the in culture. We we're trained a lot about how to do some things, but not how to be rich. It's not like we're born knowing how to be rich. We were born knowing how to poop. We're born knowing how to cry. We're born knowing how to sleep, but not how to be rich. And again, I'm not talking about getting rich. I'm talking about being rich. It's not like we're born with that knowledge. And there's actually a whole lot at stake in this. And today we're going to look at a passage in the Bible that talks to one percenters, that talks to you and me about how to be rich and not only manage the I'm not this isn't about money management. This is more about managing what money does to us. Because if we don't get that right, what's at stake and what we're going to see in the passage today is what Paul calls life that is truly life. Meaning if we don't get this right, that our money will actually keep us from life that is truly life. As Paul said another place, he said, wealth, when you have extra, when you have more than you absolutely need, that's a good thing, right? That's a blessing but he says it can be a snare it can be a trap that actually keeps us from moving forward with becoming the kind of people and having the kind of impact and having the kind of joy and all that that god wants for us but then he says if we do it right it could be a means of great gain it it could help us gain life that is truly life and so we're going to look at that this is a incredible passage in the bible because it just zeroes in on one percenters and it's super helpful so uh, we're going to be in this passage in, first, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6. And it's where Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was a pastor of a church in, in Ephesus, of the church of Ephesus. Uh, you may, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may, have, you may know about the book Ephesians. Um, that's to that church. And Ephesus was a very wealthy place. It was like a North Dallas area of the Roman Empire. Um, in fact, the first global bank happened, uh, started in history right there in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to one percenters. And here's what he's, here's how he starts. Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, who's that? Look at the person next to you. Yeah. Okay. We're all looking at each other, right? It's us. Command those who are rich in this present world, one percenters. So he's going to talk to now. Now he's going to give us two things not to do. And three things to do. And here's the way I want us to picture it as we hear this is I want you to picture right here on the stage, a river, like a fast flowing river, right? Coming through. I'm right in the middle of the river. You seeing it? All right. So it's coming, you know, it's coming like this. So the current of wealth, like there's, it's a fast current. And if you and I get caught up in the current of wealth, it will take us over a waterfall. It will take us a bad place. Just automatically, naturally, because of our sin nature, it will 
it will take us where we don't want to go. And we don't even know what's happening. We're just caught up in the current. And that's the two not do's. And then the two do's are like, well, what do you do to buck that? Well, you have to get an engine, right? Yeah, and you have to be able to buck the current. So he's going to give us two things not to do, three things to do. We're going to focus on the not to do's. Here's where the current will take us. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So those are the two things not to do that will naturally happen. This is just where the current will take us. It will take us toward arrogance and putting our hope in wealth. And so let's talk about the arrogant thing first. He says, command those who are one percenters not to be arrogant. Now think about that a little bit, because I bet you can, I bet you can think of a name of a person, and I don't want you to name them out loud. I don't want you to point to them. But somebody in your life, even when you were a kid or growing up or whatever, that, that you knew that was rich and arrogant, rich and kind of conceited. Can you think of a person? I bet I can. I mean, because I, those two things kind of go together. But I want us to realize it's not just other people, that this works on all of us all the time. That if our self-worth increases, our sense, I mean, if our, our net worth increases, our sense of self-worth does. If we have something valuable, it actually helps us feel more like a somebody. It just stuff in our self-value uh, somehow work together in our sinful nature. Let me talk, let me just kind of bring it down to all of us. So um, think back to when you were in high school. Some of you aren't in high school yet. Some of you are in high school. But if you're older than that or if you're in high school or junior high, can think back to high school days, okay, those days. Do you remember the kind of tennis shoes you wore or what, either you had or that you wanted? Now, this may be just a guy thing. I don't know. But I can remember the tennis shoes I had. I remember I wanted them and I was able to get them and that was pretty awesome. They were Stan Smith Adidas, which is actually I'm wearing Stan Smith Adidas right now because Adidas brought them back. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. I've got to, it's got to be God's will for me to buy that, right? Because, and uh, so I did. But I had the original like stance. I wish I still had those, but I had the original stance with Adidas. And I remember, um, I was like in eighth grade or something. I remember when I got those, and I felt like I was somebody. I did. I mean, I walked back to school with my new stance with Adidas, and I had I had a new swagger in the hallway. You know, kind of walking, you know, down the hallway, saying, "Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, glad you're here." You know, like I mean, I wasn't. I didn't walk around like that before, but it just kind of inflated my. You know, but it in. And, and, and then, it, you know, does that stuff does that until 1984 um, in 1984, something happened. And that was Air Jordans came out for the first time. And that set a whole new bar. I remember thinking, who would pay a hundred dollars for Tennessee? That's crazy. Like nobody's ever going to do that. But people did. We all wanted them. A few people had them and they ruled the school, man. They were really bad. You know, they were like awesome. As adults, we're the same, whether it's our car, our house, our clothes, our stuff, right? Stuff can inflate our sense of worth, inflate our sense of ego, cause us to kind of subtly look down at other people. It just happens, just like in junior high or high school. Um, also, what happens, this inflated arrogance thing, was, is that we, the more we have, the more entitled we feel in life to good treatment, to more, to stuff, whatever. The more we have, the more we tend to be entitled. Uh, this last year, my youngest son, Caleb, worked at a ski resort at Beaver, in Beaver Creek, Colorado, at Beaver Creek Mountain. And it's a nice ski resort. And he worked at, for a ski shop renting skis at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Beaver Creek. So that's, you talk about one percenters. This is, these, these are for people in the top one-tenth of one percent and more, right? You know, so, 
So I, I, and I was there when he got hired. Um, and, and the guy that hired him had multiple shops around and he said, Hey, I, I would love to put you at the Ritz Carlton store, but you have to understand if you work at that particular shop, people who are there expect the very best. Like they're not at the Ritz Carlton for bad service, right? So you've got to give the best service possible 100% of the time. Like you've got, you know, just people there, they expect incredible treatment. And if you, if they'll, they'll ask for crazy things. And if you even have a hint of rolling your eyes or delaying or grunting or being annoyed by that, you can't work at that store. You can work at some of the other stores, but not that one. And he says, so Caleb, what do you think? And here's how he answered. He said, oh, don't worry about that. I've been around entitled people my whole life. <laughs> I'm, I'm standing there like I'm like, are you talking about me? I mean, like, is me are you like, am I the one you're talking about? Who are you talking about? Entitled people, you little entitled. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, but it works on us. Do not be arrogant, um, because here's the flow. Wealth will lead to a self-inflated, self-focused life if we don't do something to arrest the flow. It will. And it's just working on us all the time. The other thing he says, if we don't want to, you know, to avoid falling off the waterfall down into the pit or whatever, is do not put your hope in wealth. He says, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. The more you and I have, the more we'll tend to trust in what we have. And the more our sense of anxiety and peace will go up and down, depending on what's happening with what we have. It's just, again, it's something in our sinful human nature that does that. We'll tend to put our hope in wealth. I mean, on money, it says in God we trust. But the more money we have, the more in money we trust. The more in our savings we trust, in our investments we trust. And it will actually hold us back. And he says, don't do that because it's a really poor God. I mean, money's great. Wealth is fine. There's nothing wrong with it, except it's a really bad God. Wealth is a bad source of trust because it is so uncertain, uncertain in a couple of ways. For one, wealth is really hard to keep. I mean, think about that. You know, we live in the wealthiest culture in the history of cultures. But how many Americans are upside down? Oh, way more than they have. Get way in money trouble and all that kind of stuff. And money just comes in. You're like, I, I don't know where it goes. It just comes in and comes in. And then it, but boy, it goes, you know, it just goes. Right. And, and even people who make a lot of money, like I saw an article this summer in Sports Illustrated, and it was talking about NBA players and NFL players. I don't know how they know this, but they claim that 78 percent of NFL players and 60 percent of NBA players who made millions and millions of dollars within five years after finishing their career, they're broke. And you think, wow, how'd they do that? Well, it's easy to do that. Because money just has a way of coming and has definitely has a way of going. And even if you manage your money well, you can't man- manage life. You can't manage the economy. You can't manage everything that happens in your career if you have a downturn or your own health and you have a downturn. And it's just hard to keep. But even if you keep it, wealth makes it really hard to keep perspective. Even if you're able to manage it and keep it and all that kind of stuff, the more you have, the harder it is to keep perspective. Jesus talked about that a lot. He said that's why rich people, uh, it's harder, it's, it's actually easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to live a kingdom-focused life. Because it's so hard to keep perspective. I mean, let's think about that a little bit. I mean, here's what God wants for us, and I, I think we all want this. Like in our financial life, we want a peaceful life, a generous life, a faith life. We all want that. And that, but the crazy thing is, 
the ironic thing is, is that the more money you have, the more wealth you have, the least likely you'll have a peaceful, generous faith life. And it's counterintuitive because like, let's go with peace. You think, man, if I have all that money, then I never have to worry about money again. Like I'm, I'm home free. You know, whatever that is, you know, you double what you have or triple what you have or whatever. Man, the more I have, then I'll just be at peace. But it's actually not true. You know, who wor- you know who worries more about money than anybody? Those who have a lot of it. Like, just think about the stock market. We, we live in interesting days, even interesting couple of weeks in the stock market. We just hit new records this week, over 28,000, the Dow. The S&P 500 is up over 25% just this year. Um, you know, it's, we, we, this is about a, a year 11 in the longest bull market, growing stock market, uh, the longest bull market in history. So people are in this euphoria right now because of some trade things and all that. And so this week, if you looked at all that stuff, they're like, oh man, it's going to be 30,000. It's going to be, oh, this is awesome. It's great. But I promise you, and I don't know if it's going to be next week or two weeks after that, it's going to be all doom and gloom. Recession around the corner, look at, you know, inverted yield curve, all that, you know, be, and, and people's, people have a lot, their emotional peace and anxiety, that level will go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down with all that stuff. And you know who's not worried about the stock market? People who don't have stocks. <laughs> right? They don't care. And, and which is most people on the planet, billions and billions and billions on the planet. They don't even hardly, I mean, they don't think about the stock market. It's the last thing on their mind is the stock market. And, and their emotional thing doesn't go up and down and up and down and up and down like that. A generous life. Again, you would think the more I have, the more generous I'll be. But that's not true. I mean, maybe that you maybe you could buck that trend, but that's certainly not the trend. Um, they another study, study that I, I saw um, about Americans and generosity was actually pretty surprising to me in a good way. Um, what they found. So they looked at people who made um, fifty thousand dollars like that's the median American income. The people who make annual household income of $50,000 give about 6% of their income to charity, which I think is, I mean, that's pretty good. Give 6%. And then they looked at, then it bumps up. So you go, let's say to somebody with household income of $200,000, you think, wow, they must give a whole lot. It goes down to 4%. And the more it goes up from there, the lower and lower the percentage, the lower and lower the generosity, because the more we have, the more we tend to cling to what we have, feel entitled to what we have, and we inflate our lifestyle instead of inflating generosity because it's mine. It's just, again, bummer part of human nature. And then same thing with faith. I mean, I think we all want to be people, right, who step out in faith, who take risks, who do great things for God or open anything. But the more you and I have, the more we'll tend to hold back. Our our stuff actually weighs us down from taking big risks or being available to God, whatever he wants me to do. And and I always feel this when I'm with our partners. You know, we just finished last year a 10-year partnership, and we'll continue our friendship. We'll continue to help them, encourage them. But a 10-year partnership in Ethiopia where we invested a bunch, and now it's financially self-sustaining. But we had the privilege of working among the poorest of the poor, and many of these leaders there were just right there of of the poor. but it was, it was so amazing to be able to relate to them and, and have them as friends. Because you talk about a, a peaceful, you think, you think that they worry about money all the time because they don't have it. But they don't. They just don't worry about it. A, a generous life, they don't even have a concept of giving part of what I have. Like, 
I'm going to give a percentage or I'm going to give a part and I'm going to keep the. They don't have they don't think that way. Just, well, if I have it and you need it, I'll give all of it. And we have to talk him into, you know, saving is a good thing. Like that's a biblical thing. It's a good thing you need to save. Why would I save when they don't have it? And I, I don't understand. I'm like, well, yeah, it is kind of hard. And then same way with a faith life. Like when we would plan for the project, you know, we had this bucket of money that we had and we and we thinking strategically, right? You've only got so many resources, so let's plan with these resources. And then they would say, well, why do we have to just limit ourselves to the resources we already have? Because God can do anything. Can't we just trust God to do whatever he wants to do? Like, well, yeah, but right now, let's just, you know, this is what he's provided. Well, well, can't we just ask him because he can do anything? And and do you not think he wants to do this? Well, no, I think, I mean, I'm sure he does. Well, then why would we limit ourselves? It's just two different ways of thinking. I'd be like, okay, yeah, you're right. Let's, let's, you know, but there's always this pressure, right? Or this tension. All that to say is if you and I don't focus on not letting this happen, the more we have, the more we will trust in what we have, the more our hope will be what in what we have. So that's the drift. So now let's talk about how to address the drift to say, okay, if I'm going to turn on that engine, then how do I avoid that? And that's the rest of the passage. Instead, he says to the rich, to the one percenters, to you and me, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, heaven, And so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I don't want us to lose the little phrase. We'll get to the two do's, but notice what he says right in the middle. He says, trust God who richly provides us with everything for our what? Enjoyment. It's kind of interesting to me in an age where uh, there's a lot of people throwing rocks at the rich, whoever the rich are. Throwing a lot of, you know, it's bad to be rich and be rich and all that. And, hey, there's some issues in our culture and in our world of economic disparity that we do need to look at and figure. I mean, that that's legit. But it is ironic to me that in our culture that the people throwing rocks at people, whoever the rich are, they're throwing rocks at people being rich. You know who's throwing the rocks? Rich? Yeah, because rich is just somebody who has more than me. But the Bible says, no, that's not rich. If you have extra, if you have more than you absolutely need in a world of need, like we're the rich. And one thing the Bible doesn't do is it doesn't throw rocks at the rich. It challenges the rich, but not just for but not for being rich. In fact, it says God who richly provides us with everything for enjoyment. We need to see it as a blessing and God wants it to be a blessing in our life. He wants it to lead to more life. As he says, life that is truly life to our enjoyment. That's what he wants for us. But if we just go with the flow, our wealth will take us away from that enjoyment life that is truly life. And so how do we how do we do this well? How do we be good at being rich? Three things to do. The first is to put your hope in God. I mean, that's the passage. He says, you know, we just read, don't put your hope in wealth. Instead, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So to put your hope in God. And when you and I find ourselves, it's hard to be aware of this one. But when you and I find ourselves being anxious When you and I find ourselves, you know, no peace, when you and I find ourselves not being generous, but holding on and not and not being kind of consumption driven, not generosity driven. When you and I, when our faith quotient gets small, 
and we're not willing to take big risks or whatever, that's a sign that we've put our hope. We have a misplaced hope. And so instead, when, I, when we start feeling that way, then I need to go to God with it and say, God, I'm not going to trust the provision. I'm going to trust the provider. Meaning, God, you're nudging me to be generous. I'm struggling with that. I'm going to trust you. God, you're nudging me to take a faith step or God, I feel anxious right now. And God, just help me not trust the provision. Focus on the provision, but the provider and be able to move forward. Which it frees us up to these next two things. The second to do good. He says to be rich in good deeds. You and I, with whatever God gives us, we have choices. With our extra, we can either. Do good. Um, or we can spend money or whatever, buy stuff. We can be rich in good deeds or we can be rich in good stuff. That's the tension. That's the choice we always have because money's a powerful thing. I mean, think about it. What if Bill Gates came to our church? Our first service is on Friday nights at Legacy. Um, so what if Bill Gates came to church Friday night? He said, you know, Chase Oakers, they're really nice people. So I, I, here's some money. I just want you, everybody who leaves who comes to church this weekend, just give them an envelope with $2,000 in it. Wouldn't that be cool? You're like, man, I'm so glad I came to church. I mean, some of you are like, oh, man, he's talking about money. I wish I hadn't come to church. But then you would feel like, oh, wow, $2,000. That'd be, that's worth it. So you get $2,000. Well, then what are you going to do with it? Right, you have choices, right? You can be, ooh, new golf clubs, right? Ooh, those new boots. Ooh, those new whatever, right? Be like, or, I mean, you have a choice. Or you can think, man, who can I lift up? Who can I encourage? What can I, you know? Because money has huge power. In the lie of our culture, we're a consumption-driven culture. The lie of our culture, and I've used this illustration before. It's kind of like Pac-Man. That goes back to the days of Stan Smith, Adidas. But, you know, the, the little guy that goes, wonka, you know, goes, it has the little dots, wonka, 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 is that each of those dots is just the next purchase, the next purchase, right? And it just, it'll just keep you going the whole time until you blow up. Just waka, 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 because of the next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And, it, and you may be rich in good stuff, but at the end of your life, you look back, and I doubt any of us will think, oh, man, I really am glad I have so much stuff. And you know what's going to happen with your stuff? It's going to be sold in an estate sale because even your kids don't want it. That's what's going to happen. Or we can look back and have a legacy of good deeds, of impact, of, man, these are the people who were lifted up. Here's where the people who came to know Jesus. Here's people. I mean, he's just saying, hey, instead of being consumption driven, be generosity driven. There's nothing wrong with having nice stuff, but don't let that drive you because it will drive you to an empty, stupid life. And then the third thing is to be generous and willing to share. He said, be generous and willing to share. Those are actually two slightly different things. When he says be generous, the Bible tells us how to be generous. That's systematic generosity. And then willing to share is to say, always live open handed, look for opportunities. So what does it mean to be generous? Well, the Bible gets really specific about that. Paul, who wrote to the Ephesians, also wrote to the Corinthians, another wealthy area in the Roman Empire. And there he just lays it out. Here's what here's how God wants us to plan our generosity is to think about generosity. Here's what it means to be generous. And in first Corinthians 16, he says this, Hey, on the first day of every week, that's when the church gathered and they came together. Like we're together right now. The first day of every week, um, bring a portion or a percentage of your income that you've decided and you 
give it to God, right? So that's, that's what he says. Like, so it's a, when we think about generosity and planned generosity, it's planned priority percentage, meaning we have a plan. It's not just, a lot of people feel generous and really what they're, they're consumption driven, but then every once in a while they see something on TV about puppies or something or, you know, kids or in the, oh man, I'm going to throw some money that way or go to church and throw some money in the plate and like, oh man, you know, but they're really driven by consumption, but occasionally it'll just throw some stuff. And the Bible says, no, that's not generosity. The generosity that God compels us to is planned generosity. So it's planned, it's priority. He says the first day of the week, meaning in, in their culture, it's not the leftovers, but the first of what you, what God gives the first uh, portion uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament, they use this term first fruits. Uh, there was a farming, a lot of farming in those cultures. And so you bring the first and the best to God. It's not the leftovers and a percentage. He says, bring a percentage or bring a portion. And you think, well, OK, so you, so the idea is I'm going to set aside the first percentage of my income. And I'm going to give that to to God's work in the world through the church. I'm going to give that to the poor. I'm going to give that. I'm going to build my budget around generosity. I'm going to build my spending around generosity. Plan priority percentage. You think, well, what should that percentage be? Well, in the Old Testament, that was easy. Because the concept of the tithe, 10%. God just mandated it. Some years there were two or three tithes that people would pay. So you paid 10%, your first 10%. That is just, there was no wiggle room. That's what you did. In the New Testament, uh, even though the tithe is kind of the baseline in the New Testament, it's there, it's resonant, but it's not a demand, it's not a requirement, because we're not under the law, we're under grace. And so in the New Testament, Paul tells us, well, how do you think about your percentage? Actually, in 2 Corinthians, he says, well, you decide, and literally, it's what it says, you decide in your own heart what to give. And then he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He also says to consider ability. So two things to consider, ability and cheerfulness. As you think about the percentage that you say, I'm going to set aside that first percentage. For some people, if 10% is the baseline, that's way too much, for you, especially if you're not giving anything. Or some people, it's way too little. But you decide based on ability and cheerfulness. Meaning, if your heart for God is small, then give small. And then allow it to grow. Because he said God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want grumpy money. He wants cheerful money. And so you give and you allow your heart to grow over time as you see him provide and respond and all that. So what percentage? Well, you you decide. But the idea is you set aside that first percentage. To give. And then this is just extra. It's not in the passage, but in uh, in the Bible it also elsewhere tells us to save. So we set aside a percentage to save and then live on the rest. Give, save, live. Now. Oh, let me go one more further. A lot of times we'll say, hey, this is a great starting point to think about. Not everybody can, nobody can start there. Some people, it's not where, it's not the destination, but 10, 10, 80 is one way to think about that, to say, I'm going to give 10%, I'm going to save 10%, I'm going to live on 80%. Now, your number may be different. Maybe right now, 2296, whatever God wants you to do, or 70, I, I'm not going to do math, but um, it's vacation week, right? Thanksgiving. But, I, I've never met anybody who shifted to the give, save, live thing that regretted it. Because think about this. This is the benefit of, of doing what God says, or one of the benefits, is that in our culture, we have a lot, a lot of money coming in. We, I know we don't feel like it because it goes out just as fast as it comes in, but that's the problem. 
So top, you know, one percenters, all this money is coming in. People around the world would be like, wow, I couldn't imagine living like that. It'd be amazing. To have that, right. But we're like, oh, man, we're so stressed because most people don't really work a budget or have a budget. So money just comes and it goes. It just comes and it goes. But when you do this, you actually have to budget a little bit. You have to think about it. You have segment to set aside the first percentage to give the second percentage to save. And then I'm going to live on the rest. It means I'm not going to live on more than I make, which is not very American. It's American to live on more than I make, go into debt and all that. But I'm going to live on less than I make so that I can be generous and I can be wise to save and then live on the rest. And imagine at the end of your life, would you regret give, save, live? I mean, I don't think I've never heard somebody say, oh, man, I wish I hadn't saved money (laughs) because now I got all this saving. And, you know, that's so stupid. Or, man, I wish I had, you know, not given and made a difference in the world. I've never heard anybody say that. So you decide, but the idea is to be generosity driven, be generous and then willing to share, which I think it's the 80 percent or whatever the the spend part. Just, hey, be open with what you have and be willing to share. Now, if you do this, there's a whole lot of benefits. It invites God's enablement in our life, does all kinds of stuff. But let's focus on what Paul said. He said, if we do this, there's a huge upside, meaning if we choose to be generosity driven, not put our hope in wealth, but put our hope in God. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Two things at stake here. One is our future reward. We talked about that last week. And if you missed it, you can go back and look at that. So heaven is free. Uh, you know, it, it's, we don't pay to get into heaven. Jesus paid the price for us. He offers his gift. But we'll be rewarded for alternative based on our faithfulness, based on our works, based on our reward in heaven. And that's, I'm going to get in that sermon. I can't. Go back and watch it. But the way we build eternal wealth is what we do with what God gives us here. And so he says, hey, so it's smart for that reason. But also they may take hold of life that is truly life, which is talking about life now. Life that is truly life, because the more we have, the more we'll tend to build an artificial life, a life just built on consumption and stuff. And at the end, it's just kind of shallow and small and gross. But it'd have to be that way. It could be a life of meaning and impact and generosity and right. And that's always the choice that we have. But there's a lot at stake. Life that is truly life. It is possible to be good at being rich. But it's not natural. There's some things to avoid and there's some things to grab. So let's think about the avoid. Remember those? We talked about being arrogant, putting our hope in wealth. We're about to pray here in a little bit. And I just want us to be really open and aware and just ask God and just think of it yourself right now. Just, God, am I, am I arrogant? Because I'm telling you, it's working on us. Meaning, am I self-focused? Am I self-oriented? Do I feel entitled? Do I, is, 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 is sort of, do, am I living more of a me life than an other people life or a God life? And the more we have, the more we'll tend to mess that up. Same way with putting hope in wealth. Just say, man, right now, if I'm, if I'm anxious or I'm holding on to things or it's a great thing to ask God and say, God, I don't want to do that. I'm going to trust the provi- not the provision, but the provider. And then on the more practical stuff, the to do's, put your hope in God, be generosity driven, do good, be rich in good deeds, and then be generous. And for some people, for a lot of people, it'd be, hey, you know, just stop, let me consider you start budgeting with generosity in mind. Maybe start budgeting, period, but start budgeting with generosity in mind. I'm going to build my budget around generosity 
and be wise enough to save and then live on the rest. And that's that's a process of getting there. And if you're not there, let me encourage you. I mean, most people aren't there. Um, we have a thing that will happen in the spring. We do it all the time called Financial Peace University. It is an amazing process. Many of you have been through that. It is incredibly practical, practical, incredibly helpful. Um, so look, look that up and do it in the spring. But until then, I encourage you just to have a conversation. If you're married, have a conversation about this with each other. It's not the, I know it's not the easiest conversation to have, but it is so important because there's so much at stake. And if you're single, have a conversation with another human, with a friend. Um, I mean, I, having a conversation with God is great, but it's just there's accountability that comes when we talk about it with somebody else who's a trusted friend and just say, hey, I, how are you doing this area? You know, here's what. Um, because, again, what is at stake is life that is truly life. And in that spirit, I'm just going to end before we pray by giving God the last word. And just read the passage again, because he's talking to one percenters. He's talking to you. He's talking to me, virtually all of us in whatever room you're in right now. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's what he wants for us. Let's pray. And I'm going to encourage us just to talk to God. Prayer is just talking to God in our own words. He's your father. He loves you. You don't have to use fancy words or just. And just ask him on the, just say, God, am I allowing wealth to get in the way of life that is really life? Am I putting my hope in the wrong place? Am I allowing it to inflate my sense of entitlement? And on the positive side, just say, God, would you help me move forward to put, right now, I'm just going to put my hope in you. I'm just going to proclaim that. I'm not going to trust the provision. I'm going to trust you, the provider. And then just say, God, help me to move to be not consumption-driven, but generosity-driven in my life. So that this would be an area of enjoyment, and I can find life that is really life, and Build a meaningful life. And so, God, just help me take whatever step you want me to take. Father, I thank you that what you want for us is a truly rich life. A life of meaning and impact and significance and connection with you and faith and peace. And this is just a hard area of life to get right. So, God, would you help us do so? Thank you for the practicality of your, of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.